Welcome to Inside Ulster, the rugby podcast from the Bell Tell, with me, Neve Campbell, me, Jonathan Bradley, and me, Adam McKendrick. With expert analysis and special guests, let's kick off. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Inside Ulster. My name is Neve Campbell. I'm back after a wee hiatus off gallivanting in NYC, but thanks to the Belfast Telegraph's sports reporter Adam McKendry and our rugby correspondent Jonathan Bradley for covering everything in my absence. You had to get a comment in about NYC before we started anything else, you didn't said you? It to be one fair, of the like we, we led both podcasts with the fact that she wasn't here. So. Yeah, I, I, I know, but I thought maybe, you know, now that she's back, we move on from NYC. I was just saying, like, that's yeah. why I wasn't here. I didn't get the sack or anything <laughs> in case people are wondering. Um, I've got course, to say, I was very jealous of some of the pictures you were putting up, Neve. It, it was looking amazing. I swapped rugby for basketball. I went to see a, a Brooklyn Nets game and they lost and then they won their, their following two games. And I was like, typical. Um, but yeah, and of course, yeah, that, that's Adam and Jonathan that you can hear again, by the way. Obviously, they're joining me. Uh, this week, we'll be discussing Ireland's roaring opening Six Nations win against Wales. And of course, looking ahead to the big home match against France this coming weekend. So obviously starting off 2023 competition got underway in Cardiff. Ireland essentially destroyed Wales 34-10 at the weekend and Andy Farrell's men found themselves 27-3 up at half time. Wales threatened a second half comeback but Ireland weathered that storm and got a late bonus point when Josh van der Flair scored. And that's my version of summing it up for anyone that didn't catch it. Um, I was thinking lads of primarily focusing on the Ulster players' performances to begin with before getting into the overall performance of the team. Stuart McCluskey was obviously sort of the main one. The other guys came on later. I thought he was very good from the start. He had a near-perfect first half. Uh, what, Jonathan, what, what was your review of everyone? Yeah, I thought he got into the game really, really well, obviously, as Ireland did as a whole. I think um, it was his pass to James Lowe, and then James Lowe kicked down the... Um, kicked down the touchline that really sort of gave Ireland the field position for that first try. It was a really good pass to get to the get to the edge as quickly. I think that's important because it's something that people often overlook about Stuart McCluskey, the fact that he does have that range to his passing game as well as just uh, the sheer size and his uh, physical carrying and his offloading ability. So I think he played well, got into the game quickly, which I think will have suited him. Like I know he's obviously that that was his fourth start in a row, but it's his first Six Nations appearance since 2016. So that's a a long a long wait for that second championship appearance. And he had another really good carry and a nice offload to keep the ball alive, and a couple of good defensive moments. So all in all, I thought it was a really really strong performance from him. Yeah. What do you think, Adam? Did I, whenever the other guys came on, because I know it's. Tom O'Toole's first Six Nations outing, he did, did pretty well. Like, Yeah, that was something that actually eluded me as well, that it was his first Six Nations appearance. And as Johnny says, I, I completely missed the fact that it was McCluskey's first uh, Six Nations appearance since 2016 as well. Um, the thing is, whenever you look at the guys' performances in the second half, it's framed around this supposed lull, you know, where Ireland didn't really do much. But you saw Henderson coming up with a big carry in the lead up to Van der Fleer's bonus point try. It was him who had that previous carry that sort of set up the, the space for Van der Fleer. And I think really in the second half, what you're always trying to do as a sub is add a bit of energy. But for Ireland, you're looking at that second half performance and you're maybe thinking to yourself, did they take their foot off the gas a little bit with France in mind next, or this week coming up? So... 
I, I think it's probably hard to judge the bench this week just purely because there was maybe that focus on France and there maybe wasn't quite the energy that you would expect, like, say, if they did come on this week. Uh, so I thought they had decent games. I don't think any of them particularly stood out, but I don't think any of them did enough to sort of be taken out of the equation for this week uh, either. I would give the bench more credit than that because I think the lull for Ireland was the third quarter. And the bench came on, and I think Ireland were instantly better. Like aside from the Ulster players, like I thought Bondiaki really made an impact. I thought Ross Byrne made an impact at a time because I think Ireland were flagging when the bench came on, and you know at that point they still hadn't got the bonus point. And it, the mentality around the Six Nations, I don't feel, has still shifted towards embracing the idea of bonus points. I think some people are still watching games thinking the game's won and that's fine, but. Mm-hmm. There were only seven minutes to go when Ireland got that bonus point. And, you know, I think um, it came off an Aki turnover. Um, Ross Byrne was heavily involved then in the move thereafter. It was a really, really good try from uh, Josh van der Flair. But, you know, that had been 45 minutes since Ireland had last scored any points. So I think that I th- actually think the bench deserves a good amount of credit for lifting things at a time when there was still a, a part of the job that needed to be done. Obviously, the primary focus was getting the win, but you never know with bonus points. You never know in this championship like what the bench did to help them to that fourth score could yet prove really important down the line. Overall, Adam, like who do you think, apart from the Ulster players, I know you had mentioned um, some guys or Jonathan, who like really stood out for you? Or did anyone I mean, surprise you also? Did anyone surprise me? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> For me, it, it was just the pack in general and the physicality that they brought, especially just... We, we talked last week on the podcast about how, you know, Ireland were going to be coming up against a team that had that bit of a boost with Gatlin coming back. New Year put last year behind them where they were so poor. Try and come out in front of what was a very partisan home crowd under the roof in the in the principality and I know Ireland made the decision to close the roof it was their call to to sort of try and use that intensity within the stadium to fuel their own performance but I thought from the kickoff the pack just as a group were outstanding you know really taking it to Wales the scrum was dominant uh you just saw the way they they pushed over I don't think I could sort of pick out one player who sort of stood out more than anyone else just because you know you had Doris making big carries you had um Van der Fleer making big carries James Ryan being backed by Tag Byrne in the second row I thought their partnership was actually very good I thought they continued that really well um and then just you know I, I would just say the pack was just so good in, the, in that first half, that's where I would put my focus. I don't know if you think this is harsh. Like I was reading some, you know, different publications do like different ratings. And um, I saw like quite often Ian Henderson was like sort of rated six out of ten because he nearly got sinbin sort of after coming on. Do you think that's uh, harsh, Jonathan? I think I have absolute sympathy for anyone that's having to do ratings in a Six Nations game <laughs> and having to rate the bench. Because yeah. you're doing that off 20 minutes. Yeah. Sometimes 15 minutes, sometimes it's even less than that. So if somebody comes on and the first thing that you see them doing is giving away a penalty. I know. And especially if it's a penalty where there's some debate, certainly in the TV commentary, whether it's going to be a card or not. If that's the very first thing you do and you're coming on and you're expected to be a 
experienced figure, um, two-time lion, massive amount of caps. I can see why people would just have that as an automatic yeah. markdown, you know, job done, try and find something else that the other subs are doing now so I can fill this out yeah. and get it filed on the whistle. Um, they didn't think we would focus on it because we're an alternative yeah, podcast, um, unfortunately. <laughs> but after after that, I actually thought Handy was pretty good. Um, I can completely understand why most people focused on the on the giving away of the penalty, especially when Ireland's um, discipline in general through that second half was so bad. Like two penalties conceded in the first half and an 11 in the second half. Now, the lion's share of those were actually Andrew Porter, um, who gave away six penalties. I don't even remember I don't know if I ever remember somebody giving away six penalties in a game, especially a player as good as Andrew Porter. But um, yeah, afterwards I thought Handy played uh, played pretty well. He had a couple of good moments after the penalty, and I think he probably wouldn't admit it. But in uh, quieter moments, I think he maybe feel a little bit aggrieved about the way Liam Williams reacted to that uh, um, contact. Shall we say? <laughs> That's a good segue into my next because I was bring, going to bring up this next point. Obviously, what Warren Gatlin sort of said about Andrew Porter. Um, so, like for anyone that didn't catch the game, the referee ended up penalising Porter for tackling Liam Williams after he grounded the ball, and then that meant that Wales got possession back and could kick for touch from the halfway line. Um, on the restart so it put, essentially put Ireland on the defensive again um, and asked about the Porter incident after the game Warren Gatland was very critical and said I'm not sure he needed to do that because he was clearly scoring the try if I was his coach I would give him a kick up the backside he had a great tackle on the line to hold up Jack Morgan he probably needs a reminder that potentially that could have been a costly yellow card in a big game um, but like it's unusual for him as you say like he's, he is a great player like Probably the most critical we could be of maybe anyone on the Ireland team after that performance. Yeah, but like Warren Gatlin's even alluded to it there. Like whenever Porter got under the ball when Jack Morgan went to ground it, it was viewed as a world-class intervention, which is what it was. Like of all the penalties that Porter gave away, I think that one is the one that I find most understandable because I think he was already committed and he was just trying to do the same thing that he had already done that was a huge positive because it uh, saved the try. I, I'm, I'm, I'm watching it back here. Sorry to cut across you, Johnny. I'm watching it back. Like, I understand guys going in trying to stop tries. Like, it's, it's your job. Liam Williams is already well across the line by the time Porter's just sliding in here. Like, to play devil's advocate, if, if Andrew Porter was to get across and stop Liam Williams from scoring that try, he would have needed to have had UCM bolt levels of speed. I think we're talking split second stuff between getting your arm underneath it before the grinding, not going across the line, but the grinding. I think there's a big problem in rugby of people sliding in on top of people after they've scored or sliding in knees first into rib cages after they've scored. But to me, I don't think that's necessarily the act that we're seeing here. I think we're seeing a clear effort to get the arm underneath the ball. I don't know. Um, there were obviously other penalties like the tackle when he was already on the grind and things that were um, I would take more issue with. Um, but I thought it was a, it's in, interesting in general. I think for obviously Warren Gatland is known for uh, maybe making his press conferences more interesting than most. I thought that it was interesting that he focused on that so uh, so heavily. I thought it was interesting that Wales reacted to it in the way that they did. 
Um, I mean, do you know what I mean? It's not like Andy Farrell would have come out afterwards and said, um, you know, Wales really need to get their line out right because they didn't punish us off that Porter penalty because they overthrew the line out. Because that could have been, like, you know, that made it 27-10, but a penalty on the halfway line, if they'd have got that line out right, then you could be talking 27-17 very quickly because um, we're only five minutes in, five, six minutes into the second half at this point. So that was, I think, the only real time in that game where you were thinking Wales could be back in this purely because it was, they essentially could have scored 14 points in yeah. two minutes. You know, they had such a promising position right off the back of that try. But as I said, they messed up the lineup. The lineup wasn't very good throughout. And like Wales had a lot of moments like that, not in terms of being able to score twice so quickly, obviously, but like, you know, they got into the 22. They averaged less than a point per visit to the 22, which is terrible. You really want to be three. Um, Ireland were 3.1. So there's a huge discrepancy there in terms of teams taking their chances, teams being ruthless, teams being clinical. And that's really the story of the game. I think just how bad Wales were in terms of converting chances. Like you can say, you know, Ireland did well to prevent those. We've already talked about um, Porter getting underneath Morgan. You know, James Ryan had a big line-out, a huge line-out steal um, off the back of a reversed penalty. Um, Keelan Doris, who I thought was... Like Hugo, Hugo Keenan was deserving of man of the match, but I thought... Um, Keelan Doris was uh, really, really good. Um, probably the leader in that pack of what was a very good, as Adam said, pack performance. He had a choke turnover um, underneath the post as well. So there were a lot of moments, I think, that like a better team probably would have punished Ireland, I think. And that's maybe what uh, Andy Farrell has been focusing on since, I think. What, Adam, do you think, like talking about that, because there is no point in denying that Ireland's levels dropped um, in the second half. I know, Johnny, you discussed that. What do you think, what do you predict, what type of game is going to come up against France at the weekend? Because they're both teams. They've started away with the way of victories. It's being billed as a grand slam decider because that's last year's champions against Ireland, you know, number one ranked side in the world. What what type of game do you think we're going to see? I was very worried after all we said in the podcast last week that France were going to lose first up to Italy. And all of that Grand Slam decider discussion was going to go out the window after week one. I mean, they could have done. They like, could have done. It was very thing. close. To the wire. Um, and uh, look, France didn't play great. Everyone's talking up Italy. And Italy played well. Like, I'm not trying to take anything away from Italy, who I thought had a very good game. But everyone's now talking up Italy as this potential, like, Six Nations contender, which they're not. They're still Italy. They're going <laughs> to bloody a team's nose every so often, but they're still... Still Italy. Could be England this week. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> um, France didn't play great. And I find it so intriguing is the fact that France had to battle until the very end going to actually benefit them this week because they're going to be, in an essence, ready to go from kickoff. You know, I, I'm not saying Ireland aren't going to be ready from kickoff, but the fact that France had to be switched on for 80 minutes they were playing a tough Six Nations game for the entire game in Rome is that going to benefit them more than Ireland who 
were able to have that lull in the second half and still come out comfortable winners in Wales is I have no doubt that Andy Farrell is going to drill into his team and that they'll know themselves they don't need the coach to say anything to know that this is a massive massive game this is potentially your grand slam decider on the line here at the Aviva so that they'll know that they have to go but I just find it very interesting that potentially you could have a position where Ireland are coming off the back of a big win France are coming off the back of squeezing past probably the weakest side in the competition and potentially France are actually maybe the better prepared for this week than the than the side that actually had the considerable win. So I would imagine you're going to have two teams who are very conscious of the fact that this is going to be the decider, or at the very least, it should be the decider. I think it could be a little bit cagier than people are expecting. I think the two sides might just have that little bit of apprehension and it'll be interesting to see if either of them come out and try and play with a little bit more freedom and panache, or if they both try and keep it tight for the at least for the first maybe quarter of the game, just to try and ease their way into it, or if they do try and play very exciting, I think you might see a wee bit of a KG affair. One thing, like we love talking a bit about mentality on this podcast, um, and I I love a good wee stat. Uh, so Ireland hadn't actually won a championship game in Cardiff since 2012 and they still now haven't lost since the opening test of their summer series in New Zealand and I know it was potentially a bit ropey there in the second half Johnny what like what do you think going into this game Jinx will be super confident do you agree with Adam I do think it's interesting because the fixtures I think fell well for France last year and they haven't fallen well for them this year. Starting with the TOA games now, fair enough, Rome is traditionally the most likely away venue that um, you're going to win in. But, you know, we all saw the stat over the weekend that this was the first time that three away teams had ever got bonus point wins in the Six Nations. It was only the third time where all three away teams have won on any given weekend. It was the first time where three away teams have won on the opening weekend. So all of those things paint a picture of how hard it is to win away. Well, France have two away games in six days to start the championship. So not only are they away from home, but they've got the short turnaround as well. Ireland obviously played first, France played last. There's been an awful lot of talk that maybe France have been... Uh, hold away in their training camp beforehand, basically getting beasted just as a preparation for these two games and physically how they approach these two games. So it's going to be really interesting to see how they pitch up. Like as as Adam says, there will have been an awful lot of energy expended in seeing that game out and I suppose a game that they really only saw out through two poor kicks from Italy, one at the posts and... Uh, one down the line. The big thing for France is going to be discipline. Like, 18 penalties is a massive amount of penalties to give away um, in international rugby. Like, you want that to be single figures if you can, but certainly no more than 10. So to be up there, um, to be up there at 18 is a huge penalty count, um, especially with so many of them giving away without the ball. Um, an awful lot of breakdown penalties, a few offsides. Um, 
that's an area that they'll really, really need to clean up. But I think they'll be massively, massively up for this. I do think there is a sense that they think they're the best team in the world. Ireland are ranked the best team in the world and they want to show that they're the best team in the world. I think there's the subplot of the World Cup. And I say subplot because normally in a World Cup year, I think we talk about it a lot more than we have this year. I don't know whether it's just because of the changing coaches in a few of the teams or maybe even just the situation that uh, a couple of the teams find themselves in. But we're not really talking an awful lot about the World Cup. But at the end of the day, this is a potential World Cup quarterfinal. And I think if France can come to Dublin and Ireland's winning streak in the Aviva Stadium, that would set down a massive psychological marker ahead of the World Cup, both as a whole, but definitely in terms of the potential to play Ireland in the quarterfinal. Now, there's a real chance that both these teams are either playing at the minute actually think that they'll both win the pool and avoid each other in the quarterfinals, which could well happen. But um, there's an awful lot, I think, on the line here beyond the, I suppose, beyond the, the match points. World Cup years are always so interesting because everything is framed around the World Cup. I think it's been a lot less this time, though. I don't know why. I agree. It, it, and for for a nation like Ireland, who at the last World Cup were coming into this the year in a very similar position to where this Ireland team are now, for it to not be mentioned as much as it has, I think is very interesting. And I know that the team can make a, a big point of not mentioning that. But even just in general, like the comparisons between this team and 2019 are amazingly similar. Apart so, from the fact that that team got absolutely hooked in the first half. Do you remember how bad that first half an hour of their Six Nations was? Well, yes. I, 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 I was, I was, I was going to say, it, it, up until the Six Nations, it was very similar. But, you know, like the, the whole narrative of coming in as coming into 2019 as one of the World Cup favourites expected to maybe not necessarily win the Six Nations but at least be one of the favourites if not the favourite for the title and then it all came crashing down this year's Ireland team come into 2023 off the back of they won the series in New Zealand perfect autumn campaign the, the comparisons are pretty much identical and yet this season we're not really talking about it quite so much and maybe it is a conscious thing of if we make too much of a big deal about this the only thing that's possible is disappointment and if, you know if you play down expectations then the only thing that can happen is we can be excited going into the World Cup but for me it's just surprising like four years on how the entire narrative up to the Six Nations, up until that first game of the Six Nations, is practically identical. It's that whole thing, isn't it, though? It's like whenever people say, maybe next year, maybe this year will be our year. <laughs> you don't say it. Um, speaking of just team news ahead of this week, um, coming up, so last weekend's opening round win, Tag Furlong, Jimison, Gibson Park and Keane Healy uh, were missing and they've been ruled out of the France game as well. In more positive news, Andy Farrell guarantees that Captain Johnny Saxon will be fit and ready for the clash following his dead leg injury and Hooker Ronan Kelleher is due to return to training this week. Uh, Ulster Hooker Tom Stewart, who joined the squad last week, has also been retained for preparations ahead of 
France's visit to Dublin. What what is your sort of ideal team, or do you do you want to see any changes, Johnny, coming up to this team this week? Um, I don't know that we will see any changes. You know, I'd probably stick with Herring ahead of Kelleher if there's any doubt whatsoever over Kelleher. Um, I think you know what kind of job you're going to get from Royal Herring, and uh, especially his solidity at the set piece could be important um, against a team like France in the later stages. We know how good their scrum is. We know how they'll um, test Ireland's line out. So probably keep Rob in there even if Kelleher is back training and other than that like with those boys all being confirmed out and confirmed out very early in the week um, I think the thought the, the thought maybe Furlong will be yeah, back yeah yeah certainly on Saturday it sounded like there was a degree of optimism about Furlong coming back um, Furlong's played so little rugby now <laughs> this this whole year, like um, which is a concern. Yeah, because all the talk earlier in the year was that he was sort of being wrapped in cotton wool, um, but that he was going to be good to go. Um, like this is always the double-edged sword that you run the risk of whenever you have player management programs, and I'm not necessarily saying that it's wrong to have a player management program because if you do flog your players, then they're more likely to get injuries. Mm-hmm. But if you're managing players and then they do get injured, they end up coming into competitions where, like these games where they're really undercooked in terms of game time. And not every player is a Jonathan Sexton who can just be dropped into a team having not played for two years and he could probably produce a 10 out of 10 performance. Some guys do need that run of games to get back up to speed. Now Furlong is probably closer to the Sexton side than he is to needing a run of games because we've seen in the past that he has been able to to come in and produce big performances off the back of long stints out but equally especially for forwards I think whenever you're relied upon so much to play that physical role like Sexton's so sharp mentally whenever he's playing the game that you can drop him back into teams and he doesn't miss a trick because his rugby IQ is just so high. He can see things at the drop of a hat. But especially for forwards, you have to work them back up into that physical side because, you know, your body naturally sort of like, <laughs> I don't really know how to put it, but it like loosens up whenever you haven't played for a while. You're not battle-hardened quite as well as you would be if you're playing week in, week out. So I think especially for, for guys like Furlong, you need to get him back in the team as quickly as possible. What do you think, like Adam? Is there anyone that you would change coming up this this week to the lineup? No, I think it worked well in Wales. I think, <laughs> I think probably the thing that you look at is is there anybody on that bench that you would swap in for anybody else? And the answer is probably no. Like, uh, whenever you combine the fact that Ireland played well, especially in the first half on uh, Saturday. And you look on the bench and you say, is there anybody who would really make a difference if you put them into this lineup ahead of someone who started on Saturday? And the answer is no. I think you just go with the same lineup. And I think, I don't think that is a problem. You know, some people say if you put the same lineup out a couple of weeks in a row, then the the other team finds it easy to know what you're going to do. But I think Ireland are playing so well at the moment that why would you change a winning formula? Why fix what ain't broke? I think the biggest debate's probably going to be Maybe not, sorry, maybe not the biggest debate in Andy Farrell's mind, but the biggest debate 
as we move through the week in the media is going to be do you bring Aki back in for McCluskey because Aki's played well off the bench twice and would have been seen as you know centrally contracted player would have been seen as being ahead of McCluskey in the pecking order until very recently but I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a little bit of a rant here I think that's an easy target for making the argument that there should be a change made and I understand where you're coming from and I agree it's the easiest position to say this is where a change should be made no, I wouldn't make the but, change either I'm just saying that's like that's what the discussion will be through the yeah. week but that that's an easy target, you know. Like, you could make an argument for anybody in that team to be replaced. I could sit here right now and say, "Let's bring in Henderson for Burn," and I could make three good points for Henderson, three good points for Burn, and you know, you could leave it. McCluskey's the obvious one because he's not out out of that entire team. He's probably the only player who's not like a nailed on starter. Starter, Yeah, yeah, but. He's part of a team that has won four in a row, or he's been part of the team that's won four in a row. He's playing well. Why would you change that? You know, you're not making arguments for anybody else in that team. Everybody else is apparently nailed on. Why is McCluskey not nailed on? I understand whenever Henshaw comes back, because Henshaw is world-class, like he's a game-changer, and you obviously bring him back in. But whenever you're talking about a player in Aki who... He played well off the bench on Saturday, but has he been playing consistently well for Connor? Has he been playing consistently for Connor? Connor, yeah. Yeah, no. So for me, I don't understand any logic behind replacing McCluskey with Aki at this point. I think it's a real kick for McCluskey if he was replaced by Aki. I don't think he will be, but if you replaced him with Aki and you essentially say you're the expendable one in this team that's won four in a row, one against Wales, one against South Africa, one against Australia. Like, if you do that, I think as Andy Farrell, as a coach, you're sending the wrong message. I think you're sending a message that I've never really considered you part of this winning team. I think I've considered you to be, you know, the expendable one for a guy who, and look, I like Aki as a player. Really like Aki as a player. I think he's done wonders for Ireland since he he came over to Connacht and he started playing. But has he been playing consistently for Connacht? No. Has he been playing over the top for Ireland to justify getting a start? No. So I think McCluskey is your guy at 12 at the moment and I don't think he will be dropped. I don't think you can't drop him right now. Psychologically though, do you think like having like oh Aki's breathing down my neck and he could take this back off me and maybe Farrell thinks I haven't earned the spot like no way you're saying just Adam that you think that wouldn't be good sort of coaching on Farrell's part maybe that maybe that is the whole thing it's like maybe McCluskey plays better some people are just like that sort of tough love yeah I think that's interesting because an awful lot of the narrative whenever a bench comes on and plays well is always like do we need to get this guy in the starting team Sonny, you can be a super sub. <laughs> yeah, but like, th- this is the thing. Like, you want your bench to come on and play well. It doesn't have to be, a, oh, this guy's playing well off the bench, so we need to get him into the team. Like, you need your bench to play well, especially against France. You need your bench to play well. And the point of difference that this Ireland team has, to my mind, over Ireland teams of past generations is, yes, it's a massively settled team, and we can pretty much... If everybody's fit, 
say definitively what Andy Farrell's starting 15 is. But the point of difference to this Ireland team is the depth. Like, like Ireland are going to be leaving good players behind when they go to the World Cup. It's not going to be their filling out the 33-man squad. Like, we've seen it already. Like, they've left good players out of their Six Nations squad. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, we were talking about it. Was it last week's podcast the week, the week before? You're realistically... No, they, they, they might go with six just because of how, how it went last time. But most teams will only take five props to the World Cup. It might it might be extended to six now, but like yeah, it's, it's a really interesting yeah. it's a really but, interesting debate because you have those two extra spots where yeah. you because I think everybody is assuming that the two extra spots are going to ensure that everybody takes specialist cover across the front row and specialist cover at halfback, but it might not necessarily be the case. No, but even even if Ireland takes six props to the World Cup, and especially if they take five props. There is going to be at least one quality prop that would make it into most other international squads across the world that will not be at the World Cup. And that that speaks completely to the depth that Jonathan's talking about there. Like whenever we got back to whenever we go back to twenty nineteen, was there anybody that you sort of thought was massively unlucky, like you would have thought was I, I can't think of anyone off the top of I my head. There's, there's probably I thought Dev Toner was really unlucky not to go. Um, but, but, but then but, but that was, wasn't but was, really built up. That wasn't really backed up by what happened afterwards. Mm. If you know what I mean. Like, you know, he did get back into the Ireland squad, but um, it wasn't like he was there then tearing up trees thereafter, if you know what mm. I mean. so. But like, th- think about the centre situation. Yeah, you're likely talking one of McCluskey or Aki, and to to back up what what I just said there at the moment, I would say McCluskey over Aki. But one of them is likely not going to go, and both of them are quality centers that would walk onto most, if not all, of the other nations going to the World Cup. Yeah, there's a real possibility that you go with four centers, and if you take, sorry, three centers, and if you take. McCluskey, Ringrose, and Henshaw as the first three centres over the last four months. That would leave Osborne, James Hume, and Bundyaki out of it, you know? Um, again, we're going down like World Cup tangents here, but then. Um, <laughs> it's good good for Ireland fans that they're such good quality depth, but probably not good for all those players. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like we've talked about this, um, about McCluskey loads. Like in another era, McCluskey has. 30 to 40 caps already, mm. yeah, more probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but similar to the back row, like he's a centre. Like there's back rows out there that would have lots of caps that maybe don't even have any caps mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because of the quality of depth that Ireland have there. Those are probably for me the two toughest position groups to break into, I would say. Um given the sheer amount of quality players there and the knock-on effect of that is the sheer amount of quality players that will not be going to the World Cup. Well, I was just going to say, to, to bring it back to this week, that I think is another reason why you don't necessarily have to make changes to your starting lineup because if things aren't going right for your starting lineup, which I, I don't think will happen, I, I think Ireland have 
a good enough team that they're going to be able to uh, compete from the, from kickoff with France. But if things aren't going well, you have the bench to bring on. And that's why the, the depth is so important in that, all right, they, they maybe weren't as effective as you wanted them to be in Wales. I mean, look, Johnny Johnny made a good point that they came on they helped get the bonus point but you know they they maybe weren't required to bring the energy that in some other games that they would be required to do this week they can and as we say because they didn't have to expend as much energy as they maybe usually would they've maybe got it in reserve for this week so I think it's going to be very important that Ireland are in this game until sort of at least the final 20 minutes and then we'll maybe see that the bench being a little bit fresher will be to Ireland's advantage over France. I think the fact of the matter is, you know, we talked about knowing Andy Farrell's first choice 15 and like that was 12 of them out there on Saturday and like McCluskey is one. He wouldn't be in in, in that and he played well. Finley Beelham is the other one, another one he wouldn't be in that and he played well. And I actually saw Conor Murray played really well. Whenever you saw Gibson Park was out and we've all Spoken about how key Gibson Park has become to this team, and especially with it being on the morning of the game that Gibson Park pulled out, you were probably thinking that could be an area where Wales think the think they could get some change there. But I thought Murray played well. I think he got uh, got to the breakdown well, got away from the breakdown well, picked the right options. Kicking was good as you would expect his kicking to be. Um, so I thought he played well, and if any of these guys those three guys in particular hadn't played well, then maybe we would be having more of a discussion about do you bring in Aki, do you bring in Casey, you know, do you bring in Tom O'Till, you know. But um, I thought all three of those guys played well. Can we count Finlay Balaam as an Osterman? Former Belfast Harlequin, uh, <laughs> Finlay Balaam. When, when did you ever think we would see two Ulstermen? In the tight head jerseys for Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> if, if we can be very liberal with the yeah. term. <laughs> well, I, I think it's Granny's from Enniskillen, isn't it? But I think, uh, yeah, um, those in Connacht and Australia would probably uh, quibble about the definition of Finlay Beelham as an Ulsterman. Going into the game this Saturday as well, something that's like out of the coaches and players' control is the setting. And Andy Farrell has said that he wants France to face a hostile Dublin atmosphere but Johnny, you've written in the Bell Tale this week about the question that many fans are wondering. Will the atmosphere match up to the occasion as that's been a concern with the Aviva pardon me, Stadium in the past? Yeah, it is, I think. And it's weird because, and this is what I find quite interesting over the last number of months, because this has been talked about an awful lot. <sighs> really the last two or three years, I suppose, that it shouldn't take England and New Zealand to get the Aviva up to uh, the atmosphere that you would expect. And it's an interesting contrast because Cardiff is probably the best rugby atmosphere in the world, I think, for my money, certainly of uh, the venues that I've been to. And the Aviva can often feel quite flat, but equally this sounds just really, like, curmudgeonly, if you know what I mean. Like... I do wonder sometimes maybe is this the kind of thing that like sports writers complain about and it's the general match going public don't actually care that much. Yeah, because you know, the RFU have done this market research 
And the main thing that annoys me when I go to games or certainly used to annoy me when I was going to the Aviva, but like we're going back 10 years um, since I went to the, a game in the Aviva, not in the press box, is how often people are walking in front of you to go to the bar and back. Yeah. But this has been talked about in a lot of different places and the RFU went away, did the market research and it's only actually 25% of people said that this really annoyed them. Mm-hmm. So 75% of people don't particularly care is the other way of looking at that. And I'm not saying like whenever I would have gone to a game I would have been not drinking at all but like I would have got my pints before the game. Stocked up. <laughs> <laughs> well you got them with cardboard yeah, carriers so you know you can do it. Like if you need to drink more than four pints a half then I don't know. You're not there for the rugby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I don't know. Like, there's a, an awful tendency um, from people like me to be like, oh, there's a Mexican way of going on. The crowd's not engaged in this. But I suppose the numbers that the RFU are putting forward would show that people don't really care that much. The people that are going are enjoying themselves. Is there anything that's ever annoyed you, Adam? Like, have you found the atmosphere to be flat compared to other places? It, I wouldn't say annoys me. It's just very noticeable whenever an atmosphere is a bit flat. So I'll give you an example from, from the weekend just gone by, if you allow me to put my Giants hat on for one one second. But on Saturday's game between the Giants and the Guildford Flames, which was... Uh, first v fourth at the time the Giants are now up to second so it was essentially a top of the table clash the atmosphere was bouncing electric absolutely amazing it felt like a playoff game in the middle of the season and then they played the five flyers on Sunday similar crowd sizes but the atmosphere on Sunday even though there were 13 goals on Sunday and three goals on Saturday the atmosphere on Sunday was so much worse like it felt so much flatter now, I understand the reasons why, you know, it's not a top-of-the-table clash. Sunday afternoon games tend to be a little bit more um, sedate, but, it like, you can feel it. I think the biggest thing is, does it affect the players? You know, do how much do players actually feed off the crowd? And it, it tends to be different for each player, which is a little bit of an issue. You know, some players say, yeah, I love feeding off the crowd. And some players say, well, I try and block it out so that, you know, I don't get too low whenever the crowd's booing, but equally I don't get too high whenever the crowd's cheering, try and keeping on that even keel. I think I think there is just a general frustration whenever an atmosphere doesn't live up to what you hope it would be. So, like, for example, if the atmosphere is really flat at Ireland-France on on Saturday... Does that make it a disappointing game regardless of what goes on on the pitch? That's for different people to decide. For me, I would say... For me, I would honestly say yes. I feel like the games that you remember most are the ones where you have an amazing atmosphere. Like, I remember the the Munster quarterfinal where, you know, the Ulster fans came down in their numbers. They were cheering. They were singing the entire game. It was incredible. You remember that game for the atmosphere the result was good, but you remember it for the atmosphere. But the games where the atmosphere didn't quite live up to the expectation that you hoped, you sort of come away feeling a little bit flat from it, regardless of what went on on the pitch. So it can have a massive impact on your match-going experience. But as Johnny says, if the market research comes back 
and people are saying we don't really mind, then you know that that's all that really matters. If if people are going just to have a few drinks and watch a game of rugby, or if people are going just to get out of the house, whatever reason they're going for, if the market research says that they don't mind not being, or they don't mind if the atmosphere is a little bit flat, then that's really all, all that matters. You know, we're not, the RFU aren't pandering to journalists whenever they're selling tickets. They're not pandering to the players whenever they're selling tickets. They're pandering to the fans and trying to give the fans the best match day experience. And if what the fans say is we only care about people getting in our way whenever they're going out to get pints, or we only care about being able to get into the stadium and then whatever happens in there doesn't really matter, then that's what they are if you are rightly going to concern themselves with. But if the atmosphere doesn't live up to expectation, then yeah, for, for me personally, yeah, I'll come away from the game thinking that was a bit underwhelming. Even if the game's a cracking game, like you, I, I think there's a sort of a distinctive split between the game being good and the game being memorable. If the game is good, you can still enjoy the game but you can still come away feeling a bit underwhelmed because the atmosphere didn't live up to it. For all I know now, we're going to get maybe angry emails from people that go and say, I make it a good atmosphere, I always cheer. Um, but I think, like, obviously this is all completely subjective, but, like, I've been to all of the stadiums as a fan with the exception of the Stade de France, and I've worked at all of the stadiums. And the Aviva, to me, is only better than Italy. And Italy's a very different vibe anyway. Mm -hmm. And I would say, I don't know. I I think. Why do you think? Why do you think that is? Like, I I really don't know. I think a huge part of it is, and again, this just sounds like old man yelling at Clyde, (laughs) but like, I think social media is a huge thing. Yeah. And I think this goes for Ravenhill as well because I think like people are on their phones. People are on their phones, which is a big thing, and people are taking pictures of themselves at the game, mm-hmm. not facing the game, because mm-hmm. it's. I get the, what you're saying. The, the, it's the, Instagrammable. The, it's yes, the way that social media is being seen at something is as important as being there. It's no different to going to a gig and watching a gig through a series of 25 people's It's a whole joke phones of like, in front of you. did you even go if you didn't Instagram it? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, do you enjoy your dinner anymore if you put a picture of it? No, but well, like... Well, here, here's, here's, a, here's sort of an opposite point. I went to the darts at the SSE last week. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I was very fortunate in that I got to stand up very close to the stage where, as we always say, as journalists, we are afforded a lot of amazing privileges that we are blessed to have. I took a look back towards the back of the arena and there's people, you know, standing on the opposite side to the stage. You can't see anything from back there. And whenever you're at the arena, you're essentially relying on two big screens that are halfway up and you're watching it from there. Now, if you're standing back there, you may as well just watch it from home because all you're doing is watching it on a screen anyway. But there were still 8,000 people who came to that. The atmosphere. <laughs> because the atmosphere was absolutely outstanding. Like, I mean, whenever a 180's hit, everyone's up on their feet cheering. When someone wins, everyone's up on their feet cheering. There's a party atmosphere. It's It was honestly one of the most enjoyable nights I've had 
uh, at a sporting event just because the atmosphere was crackling the entire night. And that's why, like, I'm not a huge darts fan. Like, I'll not sit down and watch the darts every single week. Like, I'll probably not watch another Premier League uh, darts game for the rest of the year. But I would more than happily go back and watch it in person because the atmosphere was so good. So there is something to be said about the atmosphere lifting an event to another level that it wouldn't have had before. And I think the Six Nations is one of those competitions that naturally, I think, lifts it up to another level beyond that. But if the atmosphere then at the event doesn't live up to expectation, I think it can have those negative connotations. Like Ireland and France could play out an absolute cracker this week, but if the crowd aren't fully into it, are you going to remember it as memorably as a boring game where everyone was like on the edge of their seats and really trying to lift the team? Again, as Johnny says, it's different for every person, but for, for me personally, yeah, I'm a big atmosphere guy. Part of the Six Nations is the occasion. Yeah. So if the atmosphere doesn't lend itself to the occasion, then it feels jarring. But like there is a difficulty in this, in that like I don't know, or nobody knows what the perfect system is. Like in the last twelve months, like I've been to football games where obviously you can't drink at all during it, so nobody's mm. really getting up to capacity unless they're going to the burger queue or the toilet. I've been to sports in America where you basically just get brought whatever you need by guys going up and down the stairs. I did not get that at the Brooklyn Nets game. <laughs> right there. I had to go out for my pints, but anyway. <laughs> uh, been to Coke Park where you can drink wherever you want, but not in the stadium bowl. I personally, I think that's probably um, something that we'll never see at rugby because it's going to cost money. Like, um, or sorry, any of those other things are going to cost money and you can probably get bogged down in the debate about pints and people filtering past you and because the thing that we're talking about specifically in relation to rugby you know these things or that should be relevant at Cardiff that should be relevant in Paris but it doesn't stop there being good atmospheres there so it's tough like I there's a danger as well of saying this is like a very recent phenomenon and it's not really, you know, like people were writing columns 10, 12, 15 years ago. Um, well, not quite that far back um, because that would have been Crook Park. But um, since Ireland moved into the new Aviva, like people have been talking about this. So it's not a recent phenomenon either. Well, if anyone is going to the match on Saturday and would like to tweet us, uh, but not during the game, as Johnny says, <laughs> afterwards, uh, you can tweet us at Inside Ulster BT and let us know how how you think the atmosphere is. Maybe you'll be part of the part of the people helping improve it. Um, that's us for this week, but we'll be back next Tuesday to review the Ireland-France game, of course, and you can catch up with all the latest rugby news, views and analysis. That was a real mouthful there. From both Johnny and Adam on BelfastTelegraph.co.uk or, of course, in the paper. Thanks and see you later. <laughs> <laughs>